passion for God and compassion for our neighbor, reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxis. So this morning, we are back in the book of Malachi. So let's go ahead and pick up in that book. Now, in our study of Malachi, you need to know the banner that flies over this entire book is God's faithfulness to his unfaithful people. It is that God consistently loves his people and he's faithful to them no matter what they have done to walk away from him. And we know that no matter how messed up life becomes, we can rest assured that God deeply and God passionately loves us. In fact, if we doubt that today, all we need to do is look at the cross that we're about ready to celebrate and the empty tomb. That God gave his very own son for us. That Jesus died in our place for our sins to bring us back to God. When we doubt God's love, when we see our tough circumstances, we look to the cross and we know that God's love for us is true. Now in the book of Malachi, while we see that God's love has been unchanging and faithful to his people, his people have been quite unfaithful to him. In fact, this book looks like a laundry list of just ways that people have walked away from God. We learned at the very beginning, the priests, the sacrifices they gave, they were actually sacrificing garbage instead of great and honorable animals. Their teaching was not honoring to God. The general people, they were walking away from God, and one of the ways we saw that was in their relationships. They were dating and ultimately marrying unbelievers. People who were married were divorcing their godly wives to marry pagan wives. I mean, it just seems like it's one way after another that God's people have been unfaithful to him. Now, as we begin to put our finger back in the text to pick up our study this morning, we're going to see these two aspects of the book uh, placarded again. The first two verses we're going to look at is God coming back and once again reaffirming his faithful love to his people. And that no matter what they have done, he is going to stay there and be faithful in his love to them. And then the verses will continue and we'll see another way that God's people walk away from him. So let's go ahead and and begin at the very top, point one. And here it is. God loves us. He won't leave us. No matter what we have done, we can return to him. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Just return to me. I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say... How shall we return? And that would continue on the next part of our study. Now, if I was God, uh, to be honest, I would be really sick and tired of these people. It's a laundry list of infidelities, one one thing after the other. I would be tempted to give up. I would be tempted to throw in the towel. But as we've seen, this is the good news. No matter what God's people seem to do, God doesn't turn away from them. 
God doesn't run away from them. God's arms are still open wide. Just return to me, he says, and I will return to you. I love the way he says it at the top here. I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. Now, that's a good word. In other words, you deserve to be consumed. You deserve to be destroyed. But I am faithful to my promise. I'm faithful to my word. I will stay loving to you. I, God, I picture him like a pit bull. You know, a pit bull holds on and just won't let go. He's a pit bull with his love for his people. No matter what, he won't give up. Now, by the way, as we see, this is not just a one-generation problem. This is a multiple-generation problem that has gone on with God's people all throughout the Old Testament times. Remember uh, God's people when they were in Egypt? And how God in His graciousness came and He saved them. And there was plague after plague. They witnessed through Moses gnats and flies and turning water into blood. And they even witnessed the plague of the death of the firstborn. They knew that God loved them and was faithful to them and cared for them. And God took them out of Egypt. And He parted the Red Sea. They walked across on dry ground. In the wilderness, he fed them with manna every morning, bread from heaven, a supernatural working of God, water out of a rock. And what did they do? They turned away from him. I think it was 14 times in the wilderness they turned away from him. Again and again and again. They were unfaithful to him. But God was never unfaithful to them. His love stayed strong and true. Go to the book of Judges. What do we find? God's people walk away from him. God raises up a judge, a deliverer. He saves them. And then they just go right away. And then God raises up another judge. And they drift right away again and again. And God says, no matter how far away from him you have strayed this morning, I love you. I'm not going to let you go. You may not be able to forgive yourself, but I can forgive you. Just return to me, he says. I will return to you. Probably the best New Testament story to picture what God is saying in this is the story of the prodigal son. Many of you know it. You know, a son, our father had two sons, and one of the sons just decided he wanted to leave, go his own way. He said, Dad, give me my inheritance now while you're living. Basically saying, Dad, I wish you were dead so I could have my money from you. His father gave him his portion of his wealth. That son went away to a faraway country and wasted all of it in wild living. And finally, he ended at the bottom of the barrel, feeding pigs, eating the pig slop. That's what he was down to. He says, you know, I'm going to try and go back to my father. And the story tells us that when he goes back to his father, that his father saw him coming a long way away. Because what had his father been doing that whole time? His eyes scanning the horizon. 
See, his father, his love had never died. His love had never gone away. He was still hoping and praying and looking for his son to return to him. And when his son saw him coming on the horizon, he got up and he ran, the Bible tells us, ran to him and he embraced him and he, he, he kissed him. And they had a big party because my son that was lost is now found. He's returned home. The father in that story is a picture of our heavenly father. He says, no matter far, how far away you have gone this morning, return to me. I will return to you. I love you. I love you more than you ever can imagine. And that love will never change. Amen? Amen. That is the banner that flies over this book and that he reminds them of. Now, from there, he says, return to me. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about when it comes to how you need to return to me. And it has to do with their finances. Not giving to God, he says, is robbing God. Malachi 3.8. God gives them an example of how they've drifted from him. Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? Well, in your tithes and contributions. So God says, we need to sit down and have a budget meeting. You know, we got to go over your budget because what I'm seeing in the budget is not working out right because you are not giving to me. You're all keeping it and giving it to you. Now, he talks about two specific ways that they have not given to God, which is tithes and contributions. So let me explain what these are. I put them as bullet points in your outline. A tithe simply means 10% of someone's income. They're not giving to God that a tithe. Now, a contribution, that also means sort of an offering, and it's a special gift for a special need that is above and beyond the tithe. They're not giving those things to God. Now, in the Old Covenant, let me explain to you. In the Mosaic Law, there wasn't just one tithe. You notice it's plural in your tithes and contributions. So let me explain to you a little bit of what it looked like in the Old Testament times. The first tithe they gave was of their produce and their livestock. It was a standard off the top 10%. Now, by the way, some people say the tithes were just their taxes in that time. No, they technically weren't. Tithes were not taxes. Tithes were actually a form of their worship to God. Because that 10% off the top that they gave went to the Levites. And that funded ministry. That funded the temple. And it was also their worship to God. Incidentally, the Levites then gave 10% of the tithe that they received to the priests. Now, by the way, if uh, the offering that they needed to give of their produce or their livestock was too heavy or too large for them to bring all the way to the temple, they were allowed to sell it and convert it into money, but they had to add 20% to it to be able to do that. So that was the first thing, a 10% tithe off the top. Then they also gave additional tithes, and I'm not going to go into all the details of this, but just give you an idea that there's additional tithes. They gave a special 10% tithes on the holidays and on the feast days. 
And every third year, that additional tithe they would normally give on holidays and feasts was kept in the local towns, and it was used to help um, help those who were sojourners, that is, immigrants, or those who were fatherless or widows, that is, uh, children without dads and single mothers. In other words, it was a benevolent fund that they funded in the local towns every three years to help take care of special needs within the community. So my point is this. If you start to add up all these ties, you realize it's not just a simple 10% that they gave under the Old Covenant, but they gave up to 27% of their income. And the only reason I want you to know that is just I want you to be aware it wasn't a simple, flat 10%. It was multiple ties they gave. Now, the other thing you need to know is that tithing was not just something that's found exclusively in the law of Moses. Actually, tithing predates the law of Moses, and it goes all the way back to Abraham. Some of you were around for our study in the book of Genesis, and you know that after Abraham returned from conquering some kings, he met a priest of God named Melchizedek. And what did Abraham do? He gave a tithe of the spoils he had from conquering those kings to Melchizedek, who was a priest of God. Now, when he gave that 10%, were those his taxes? No. That was worship. He worshiped God by giving 10% to Melchizedek. So the thing to understand at this point is that tithing is a form of Worship In the Old Testament, it was, for under the Mosaic Law, it was actually beyond 10%. Now, let me just mention something else that might be helpful. Um, some churches, they don't take offerings in the worship service. They don't like to do that. They have offering boxes on the back wall, and they never want to talk about money, and they never want to talk about money in the same time they talk about God. Now, there's nothing wrong with having offering boxes on the back walls. That's fine. That's okay. But I'll tell you that my personal preference and personal belief on this issue is that it is healthy and that it is good to pass the offering plate in the worship service. And here's why. Because a worship service is where we worship God. And money is one of the ways we worship God by giving Him honor in the worship service by giving him a financial gift in the worship service. When you think about it, we give him our singing. We give him our attention as we study the word. And we give him our money as a way of honoring and worshiping God. Now, as we continue in here, he says this, that not giving to God, he says, actually is a form of robbing God. Now, those are strong words. Robbing God? Most of us approach the offering this way. It's all my money, and I'm not sure if I want to give God 10% of my money. And God approaches it the other way. (laughs) Actually, none of it's your money. All of it's my money. (laughs) All the money is mine, he says, but I want to let you keep 90. (laughs) I'm the generous guy in this. In fact, the way we need to think about it is God is the one who has provided the gift of our paycheck. Say some of you, maybe one of you works at um, Pure Fishing. 
you work at Pure Fishing, and who's the one who gave you the job? God? Who's the one who gave you the skills that are necessary to be able to function in that job? God? Who's the one that's given you the health so you get up every morning and can keep going to that job? God? Whose paycheck is that at the end? It's God's. And he says, honor me with 10%. You keep 90. Maybe some of you are farmers. Now, you farm the land, but whose land are you farming? God's. Whose seed are you planting? God's. Who gives you the rain? Who gives you everything you need and the sunshine so your plants will grow? It's God. The harvest is all God's harvest. So my point is this. When we get our paycheck, we don't say, you know, I'm struggling if I want to give God 10% of my money. No, the answer is, God, thank you for letting me keep 90% of your money. Because he's the one who has provided our needs. The next thing we learn as we continue through this text is God cursed his people when they wouldn't give. You are cursed with a curse. That's a double curse right there. You are robbing me, the whole nation of you. So uh, when God curses you, by the way, that's serious business. Now, I've had people curse at me in traffic. I can survive that, right? But when God curses at you and it's not in traffic, it's a really serious issue. Now, what is going on here? What has happened is they are in a tough financial situation. They're in an economic downturn. They don't, they're not getting a lot of crops. And so what they're doing is, hmm, we have to figure out a way to make ends meet. So the first thing we want to cut out of our budget is God. You know, we can cut him out a little bit. We can cut out our giving, and that'll give us more money at the end of the day. And God says that's not the way it works. It works the opposite way. The reason you don't have enough is because you won't give enough. You give to me first, and I will take care of providing for all your needs. Now, this is true throughout the old, entire Old Testament. In fact, we find in the Old Testament that God would bless his people when they would give to him, and yet God would remove his hand of blessing from his people when they wouldn't give to him. Let me read for you a, a, a line from the book of Haggai. Now, this book of Haggai was written before the book of Malachi. and It has to do with building the temple, but this, the principles, I think, remain the same. It says this, You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with a hole in it. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. Why do you think it never seems to work out when you say, I can't afford to give to God? Then you don't give to Him and all of a sudden you don't have that extra money you thought you were saving in the first place anyway. You see, what happens is, is when God's people won't give to him and honor him in their finances, 
the result is the money ends up going someplace else anyway, doesn't it? The doctor bills, the insurance premiums, unexpected repairs. And at the end of the day, when you choose not to give to God and honor Him with your finances, you end up losing your wealth rather than gaining your wealth. That's just the way the Scripture tells us things work. Now, let me flip on the next page here. Let me just read for you a passage of Leviticus that talks about what would happen if God's people in the Old Testament times would choose not to honor Him and obey His commands. But if you will not listen to me, and you will not do all these commands, if you spurn my statutes, if your soul abhors my rules, so that you will not do all my commandments, but you break my covenant, then I will do this. I will visit you with panic, with wasting disease, and fever that consume the eyes and make the heart ache. And you shall sow your seed in vain, for your enemies shall eat it. I will set my face against you. You shall be struck down before your enemies. Those who hate you shall rule over you, and you shall flee when none pursues you. This is exactly what has gone on in Malachi's day. They've, to- they've chosen to turn their back on God's ways in multiple times, not just their giving, as we've already seen that. And what has happened? They've sowed their seed in vain. They don't have a really good crop. The enemies around them are harassing them. They're still under the finger rule of Persia. God's just been keeping his word. This is the big idea I'd like to hammer home this morning, and I'll say it multiple times, but let me just say it right now for the first time. You know, when we don't honor God with our finances, we're not just robbing God, we're robbing ourselves. When Christians choose not to honor God with their finances, they're not just robbing God. At the end of the day, they're also robbing themselves. And let me continue working our way through Malachi. God promised to bless His people when they gave. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need, I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil, and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts." Now, what is the storehouse? The storehouse is part of the temple. Think of it like a massive walk-in pantry. God says, you know, bring in your tithes. Let the Levites will have the food. I will be worshipped. You know, and God literally says here, put me to the test in this. I'm not talking about giving extraordinary offerings. He says, just bring in the ordinary required offerings. Test me in this. Now, God doesn't usually say test me, but in this case, he does. And here's the deal. He says, you know, in previous generations, you've read about how I've worked miraculously and powerfully among your forefathers. I will still work miraculously, and I will still work powerfully among you. Just simply 
honor me with the first fruits of your wealth. Give simply what I've asked and what I've required, and I will bless you, is what he says. I will bless you miraculously and abundantly. He literally says, I will throw open the storehouses of heaven, the floodgates of heaven. Now, some people realize this is language that is actually hearkening back to Noah and the flood, where the floodgates of heaven were opened and for 40 days and 40 nights. The water came down upon the earth to fill the earth. He's saying, I'm going to do that, but it's through blessings. Other people realize that maybe what's going on at this point, it would seem as a drought. And God says, I'm going to send the rains. I'm going to send the rains in abundance so your crops grow really well. He also says here, I'm going to rebuke the devourer. Now, who would this be? If you know much about this part of the world, you know that locusts are a a problem. Hordes of locusts that would just fly in and completely strip a field bare. God says, you just honor me and I will supernaturally protect your crops, is what he's saying. Now, before we go too far into this particular verse, I want to stop and protect us from a misunderstanding of this verse. These two verses that I just read are favorite verses for the health, wealth, and prosperity preachers out there. And what they say is this. You want to get rich? Just give to God. Look what it says in Malachi. Give to God. Test me, and I'm going to open the floodgates of heaven. You put $10 in the offering plate, he's going to give you $100 this week. You put $100 in the offering plate, he'll give you 1000 You've all heard this, haven't we? Like God is some kind of cosmic pinata. You just whack him enough times with the offering plate, he turns into an ATM. Just spitting out money. You know? And really the motivation behind all that is not the glory of God, but greed, isn't it? It's greed. It's trying to make someone rich. Now, what you need to understand here is, in this section of Scripture, it's actually a one-time promise to these people at this time in this place of history. We know that God had said that He would bless His people in their land with good harvests when they honored Him. And so this is not talking to every single farmer on the world, that if they would just put enough on the offering plate, their crops would be wonderful, that there would be no uh, bugs that would be in their corn. If they just put enough in the offering plate, this was a one-time promise to this specific people, God's people, God's place, God's time. But let me qualify it with this. While this is a one-time promise, behind this one-time promise is an all-time principle. And this is the principle. That when God's people honor Him with their wealth, God will bless His people when they do that. And God removes His hands of blessing when His people don't do that. The principle is that God wants to be honored with our wealth. And we can't get away from that. God blesses us when we do, and He removes His hand of blessing when we don't. 
So, when we don't honor God with our finances, we're not just robbing God, we're robbing our what? Ourselves. It happens again and again. Now, what I'd like to do at this point, I put together a, sort of a dozen other principles from Scripture on giving. I'm going to run through these really rather quickly, but there are other things we need to know that are important about this. So what else does the Bible tell us about giving? Number one, God is more concerned about the size of the sacrifice than the size of the gift. We see this in the story of the widow's might. And he sat down opposite the treasury, and he watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he calls his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Some of us don't have a lot. So when it comes to giving to God, we say, well, it really doesn't matter. You know, the amount of money that I give, how is that going to change anything in the church? It's just a pittance. But you see, Jesus is not looking at the size of the gift. He's looking at the size of the sacrifice of the giver. That's what God cares about. So this is incredibly encouraging to those of you who are here this morning who don't have a lot to give. That doesn't mean don't give. It means God knows the sacrifice that is behind your gift when you give, and He chooses to honor that. Number two, God blesses givers based on the generosity of their giving. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. And by the way, in your life group worksheets tonight, you'll spend some time in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and chapter 9. And those two chapters are some of the best New Testament chapters on giving. And that's where some of these principles come from. And it says this, that giving to God is a little bit like farming. You know, if you want a good harvest, you have to risk a lot of money in the ground, don't you? Right, farmers? You got to put a lot of money in. If you want a small harvest, well, you don't put a lot of money in. And what this is saying is to some degree, we decide how much God will delight in our life based on the giving of our life. That's what he says. Now, by the way, the way God responds to our giving may not always be financial. So this is not a, like, put $10 in the plate, get $10, you know, $20 back out of the plate. That's not the way it works. But God does bless the giver in proportion to his giving. Number three, we are to give, it says in the New Testament, proportionate to our income. For if the readiness is there, it's acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. Now, in the Old Testament, we see very clearly through Abraham gave a tithe, and the law of Moses gave a tithe, actually multiple tithes. But we get to the New Testament, it doesn't talk about a tithe specifically as what we will give in our gift. But it does say that our giving should be proportional. In other words, those who have less, give less. But those who have more, God would expect would Give more. 
Number four, we are to give voluntarily and joyfully. Each one must give as he's decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. When it comes to what we give, we give what we put into the offering plate cheerfully. And if you feel like you're not giving cheerfully, then you're giving too much. But you see, our New Testament giving is always a response to the gratefulness in our heart of what Jesus Christ has done for us, isn't it? So we cheerfully and we sacrificially give out of gratitude to God. Number five, we give with confidence that God will take care of our needs. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Many times, what holds us back from giving to God is we say, you know what? I may need that money. If I give that money, I won't have that money. If I give that money, I could be too financially strapped. I'll give when I have all my college loans paid off. I'll give when my credit card debt is officially gone. But what the scriptures say is we always give in faith that God will provide for our needs. And he does. He always provides for our needs. Number six, everyone is to regularly give to God. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. So this means if you are a junior hire that has a paper route, guess what? Don't say I'll wait to give until I'm an adult. Start now. Everyone is to give. You are to, maybe you're a, a high school student. You're saving for college. And you may say, well, I'll give to God out of my income after I have, you know, have an established job. No, everyone is to give. You may be five years old. You may be 50 years old, an executive. Every single one is to set aside a portion of their income and give to God. And remember, to not give to God is to rob God. It's to invite the curse of cursing or as opposed to blessing. Number seven, if we don't give, we are not just robbing God, we are robbing ourselves. That's sort of our big idea through this whole thing. Give and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. The point is this, you can't outgive God. You can't. Whatever you give, God says, I will take care of, I will give back to you a good measure, pressed down, running over, I'll take care of you. Number eight, giving opens the door to accomplishing greater things for God's kingdom. If you then have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you with true riches? Does anybody here want to do great things for God's kingdom? Well, I hope so. By the way, Billy Graham's job is now officially open. So if anybody wants to go for it, you know, it's, it's available. You know, 
I hope you pray a desire to do great things for God's kingdom. Not for your fame or your name, but for God's fame and God's name. But the precursor to doing great things in God's kingdom is to be faithful with the wealth that he gives you. It's only when we're faithful with the little bit of money that he entrusts in our hand that we give at back in portions to worship him, that he opens the door to do greater things in his kingdom for him. Number nine, giving writes our autobiography. No one can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. We are either living for God or we're living for greed. There's no middle ground. And what we give says the truth about our life. Somebody says, you know, I love my kids. But then you look at the checkbook and it's all spent on golf and not on the family. The checkbook doesn't lie. Write your autobiography. Someone says, I love my God. But then you look at the checkbook and there's no honoring of God with your wealth. The checkbook, it writes the true autobiography. Number 10, faith without giving is dead. I know that you guys who were in uh, high school with Pastor Stephen, you just finished studying the book of James. Remember that? When you learned faith without works is dead. Well, Malachi sort of says faith without giving is dead because it's out of the overflow of the heart that the checkbook spends. Isn't that true? We give based on what our heart tells us to do. Number 11, giving changes me. Some people say, well, I'll give to God after I get my relationship right with God. That's not the way it works. Let me tell you this really interesting thing. It's like a relationship between you and your spouse. Say you and your spouse are having a, a, a little fighting issue back and forth. You don't say, well, I'll wait till we solve all of our issues and then we'll go on our dates. No. You go on your dates, you love one another, you serve one another, and you find it starts to change your heart for one another, doesn't it? Amen. In the same way, this is what happens. When it comes to our relationship with God, we give to God and we find it starts to change our heart for God. And we fall more deeply in love with God. Because we, the Bible says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And number 12, I will be tested to rob God. Realize that test is coming. In Malachi's day, what happened is they hit economic deprivation. What was the first thing they did? Cut out what they were giving to God and chose to start saying, we're going to need it to sustain ourselves. That was a test. It was a test to see what priority God had in their life. Now, here's my challenge. That test is coming in your life. Don't fail like the people of Malachi's day. All of our giving is done by faith. It's faith. We give first, we give what is best, and then we trust God to provide. Now, I don't know if you look back in your life, some of you who are older Christians, who are more mature Christians, we could have you up here. And I know you would give story after story 
of how you gave to God and God provided for you in your time of need. And he proved true. Let's pass the test. Now, sixth, let me bring this to an end here. Should Christians tithe? How much should we give? Well, we saw that tithing was the response of worship by Abraham. We saw that in the time of Moses, it wasn't just one tithe, it was actually multiple tithes they gave. And they gave special offerings above and beyond those tithes. And we also saw that when they chose to not give the required tithes, they were cursed by God. But when they chose to give those tithes, they were blessed by God. Now we come to the New Testament. And 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9 doesn't give a specific percentage, but it says we should give cheerfully, we should give sacrificially, we should give proportionately, and that everyone should be involved giving. So should we give 10%? More? Less? What do you think? You know, what 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 does say is that our giving is a response to our gratitude. Our gratitude to our Savior and what He's done. The good news of Jesus Christ was never fully known in the Old Testament. It was only anticipated. We have that good news. We have much greater gratitude than anyone in the Old Testament could have ever experienced because we know that we are literally the most blessed beings in the universe, completely forgiven through Jesus. I'd put it to you this way. When it comes to tithing, I think that's a good floor. But it's certainly not a ceiling. It's a great place to start, but it's certainly not the place where we should stop. And when we give, do we give sacrificially? Do we give generously? Yes. But we also give trusting God to provide and to meet our needs. And He will prove faithful. Now, when it comes to responding to this message, there are three groups of people in this room. And so you need to put yourself in one of these categories and figure out how God is calling you to respond. The first is this. What if I'm not giving anything? You may be 10 years old and back to your paper route or your small-time job, but you haven't given anything. You may be 50 or 60 years old and you haven't given anything. What does God want you to do? Quite honestly, start by asking forgiveness. You may have sinned against God in this area intentionally, but many times it's unintentionally. Simply you didn't realize that giving is an essential part of our worship of God. Repent. And then this week, begin by giving at least the floor of a tithe in your offering to God. And trust Him that He will bless you. Trust Him that He will take care of you. Trust Him that He will begin to provide for all your needs. The second group are those who give but don't give a tithe. What if I'm tipping God, not tithing to God. By tipping God, I mean just giving him a little tip of the hat. You know, statistics say that the average person in the church gives 3% of their offering to God. Other statistics say that 73% of Christians give less than a tithe to God. 
What should you do if you're in that category? Well, I would personally say that's one of those things where you need to go home and pray and talk to God. God, have I sinned in this area? Am I really not honoring you with my finances? I'm not giving sacrificially. I'm just sort of tipping to you like you're a waiter. And if so, repent. Give to God at least the tithe and trust Him to provide. But there's this third group that's really interesting. What about those people who are here this morning who have been tithing and even have been giving beyond a tithe? Here's what I would say to you. Go home today and thank God for His being faithful. Because I can guarantee you that every single person in this room who has been tithing to God would tell you, if you could interview them, that God has been faithful. God has provided for every single one of their needs. God has cared for them in ways they never expected, and God has given them far more than they deserve. God has been faithful to keep His Word, to take care of and honor His children that seek to honor Him in their financial world. Isn't that true? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, we come before you, and I just want to thank you for talking to us about our wallets and about our finances. It's so uncomfortable to talk about that, but yet it is so important. Jesus, I want to thank you for being faithful to your word and always providing for those who have given sacrificially to you. We thank you that you are intimately involved with our worlds, and many times you bless us way beyond what we deserve. And I also think about those among us who aren't giving, who are maybe giving, if they are giving, they're giving far less than what is sacrificial. I pray that uh, as they reflect on this message today, Lord, that you would speak into their heart and that they would take a step of faith to begin giving joyfully and sacrificially to you and begin trusting, trusting you to provide for all their needs, knowing that you always prove faithful. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at ChristToOurCulture.com. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.